You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Acts 17 from verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel this morning is John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. You can find it on page 886 of your Bible. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan, and I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the fifth Sunday in the season of Epiphany, where the church around the world and throughout history gives her attention to the way in which Christ illumines our darkness. And to that end, we are seeking in this season to clarify and focus our reason for existing as a church, Redeemer's why. And we are saying that Redeemer exists to practice gospel formation for missional presence, gospel formation for missional presence, and that we do so through the seven essential practices of the ancient church. And you can read more about these on the inside cover of your liturgy. If you take this out and turn it up to the inside cover, you'll find more about those seven practices there. You can also pick up a card, a seven practices card on the table in the lobby on your way out. And you can read more about those at home. These are practice-based answers to the fundamental questions that every human being is seeking to answer in life. Questions like, what story am I in? Who am I? With whom do I belong? How do I change? Where do I make my life? What is my purpose and how do I love? These are practices, as you might imagine, or have, have you have maybe read and seen, practices of story, identity, belonging, virtue, context, vocation, and imagination. And thus far, we've given an introduction to the first four practices. And if you've missed any of those weeks, you are welcome to go online to our website or onto Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to content and you can catch up. Let's be on the same page together as a church family. And we are also discussing these practices in our small groups, which by the way, small groups are relaunching this week. If you're not a part of a small group, please go and be a part of one. Our hope is that every single adult that calls Redeemer home would be a part, would participate as part of a small group. And I think there are 28 to 30 of small groups meeting all over the city of Richmond this week. Go and be a part of one of those. And if you don't know how to do that, you can go onto our website and sign up, or you can talk to our director of community formation, Stephanie Workman, and she would love to help you get signed up for a small group. Now, as we begin this week, we are going to look at practice number five. Practicing context. Context. Let me say a prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let's talk about celebrities for a moment. What do Orlando Bloom, Paris Hilton, America Ferreira, Cuba Gooding Jr., Dakota Johnson, Winona Ryder, Bryce Dallas Howard, and Joaquin Phoenix all have in common? What an amazing movie lineup that would be, by the way. I don't know what that kind of movie would be about, but it would be weird. Um, What do the celebrities have in common? They are all named after places, aren't they? Did you hear that list of names? They're all named after places, after cities or states or countries. And the idea of naming people after places is not a new idea. In fact, the church has been doing this way before celebrities started doing this. Uh, The great saints, the great men and women of church history are often named after their town or their country or their city. You might think about St. Augustine of Hippo, which, just to clarify, is not named after the giant water mammal, uh, but is rather named after a town in northern Africa, which is no longer called Hippo, is now called Anaba, and it's in Algeria. You might think about St. Teresa of Avila or St. Francis of Assisi or, if you know your Anglican history, St. Anselm of Canterbury 
Or more recently, you might think about Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Now, in the second, third, and fourth centuries, there was a whole string of Alexanders, of St. Alexanders. And there were so many of them, they had to name them after places because otherwise we'd just get confused. There was Alexander the Martyr. There was Alexander the First, which, how is Alexander the First not the first? We got to work on this, guys. Uh, there's Alexander of Comana, Alexander of Bergamo, Alexander of Constantinople, Alexander of Jerusalem, and most confusing of all, Alexander of Alexandria. I'm just so glad that God did not call me to minister in Danville. Like, that would have been confusing for everybody, right? The point is that it became normative in the life of a church, in the life of the church, for when a particular man or woman was following Jesus with such remarkable faithfulness, with such fruitful goodness, to identify that person with their place, with the place where they served. So much so that it became a part of their name. There must have been something about the way they were committed to their city or their region that was integral to their lives. Like part of how they followed Jesus was that they made their lives and put down roots in a particular place. Now, place matters. Place matters, if you don't know that already. The place where you make your life matters. And one of the most common things that I hear over and again from new people who move to Richmond and make their way into visiting Redeemer is that they have moved here looking for a place to put down roots. Have you, ever, have you said that phrase recently? I'm just trying to put down roots. So many of us are saying this. And the story of the Bible actually dignifies this desire to be rooted in a place. The story of the Bible begins with humanity created and given a garden in which to dwell. Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 reads that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. You might say that God planted a garden and then planted people in that garden. But human beings rebel against God and as a consequence they are cast out of the garden and they wander the world. And God makes the beginnings of restoration for people in forming the nation of Israel and giving them the promised land of Canaan and the city of Jerusalem. God's people are not to be restless. He gives them a land, he gives them a city. And they are to be people of the land and people of the city. And by making their home in those places, they are to make their home in God. But, true to form, Israel does not make their home in God, and therefore the city of Jerusalem is conquered and they are exiled from the land. But Jesus is faithful where Israel failed. And that's why his resurrection promises a new creation, a new land in which God's people will fully and finally put down roots and dwell in peace. The church today, therefore, is God's people who have no land or city of their own and who wander the wilderness of this world as pilgrims and sojourners, citizens of God's future city, the new Jerusalem, but who dwell in the land and in the cities of this world today. And this is why, hear me if you can, all of us are so hungry to put down roots and be in a place. It's also why no matter what city or land you choose, you will never be fully at home. It will never fully satisfy. But even though no city or place can fully satisfy us now, there is a way to inhabit our present city and our present time that anticipates and practices the hope that we have for this future city. There is a way to do this, and that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to go to Acts chapter 17, which Lane read just a few moments ago, and we're going to see that this takes place in the center of one of the great cities of the first century. And we're going to see in this text what it looks like for there to be a missionary encounter in a great city. 
And we're going to see what it looks like, therefore, to be missionally present in a particular place, in a particular time. And um, I haven't given you an outline yet, but I'll do so now because I know some of us, when we listen to something, we want to know where it's all going. So if you're the kind of person that takes notes, here are your categories, okay? We're going to talk about embracing your context. Then we're going to talk about avoiding the twin errors. And then we'll talk about practicing that context. So embracing the context, avoiding the twin errors, and practicing the context. Let's start with embracing. Acts chapter 17, here's what's happening. The Apostle Paul is in Athens. Athens is the intellectual capital of the world at this time. It's the Oxford or Cambridge or Palo Alto or Berkeley. Or if you're from Charlottesville, you would like Charlottesville to be in that list. But guess what, Charlottesvillians? It's not. I can say that because I'm from Charlottesville. Verse 16, here's what's happening. The Apostle Paul is walking around the city and the text says, quote, his spirit was provoked meaning he was unsettled, he was disturbed, he was concerned because the city was full of idols. Now, the Greek word for full of idols there is katedolon. And the great Anglican priest and scholar John Stott theorized that the best way to understand this word is that it's, quote, a city submerged in idols, literally drowning in idols. Now, we look at this today and we kind of shake our heads and we think, look how superstitious people used to be. Isn't it good that we're not superstitious like those idiot Athenians back then, right? Joseph Campbell, an American literature professor and author from the mid-1900s, writes, you can tell what's informing a society by what the tallest building is. When you approach a medieval town, the cathedral is the tallest structure in place. When you approach an 18th century town, its political palace is the tallest thing in the place. But when you approach a modern city, the tallest places, tallest places are the office buildings and the centers of economic life. Joseph Campbell wrote this in response to contemplating what might be the idols of our particular place in our particular time. What are the tallest buildings in Richmond? Well, it's the James Monroe building, right? 600 Canal Place, SunTrust Plaza, Federal Reserve Bank. It's the offices and the banks. What might we derive from that about the idols of Richmond? So Paul is walking around Athens and he sees a city submerged in idols and he goes to the marketplace. He goes right to center city. The marketplace is not only the place for trading goods, it's also the place for trading ideas. The marketplace was less like Whole Foods or Aldi or Lidl. It's more like Richmond's downtown, VCU. Canal Walk, that area. So once Paul gets there, he strikes up a conversation with some of the top-notch philosophers in the marketplace, and they think that he's pretty strange. They say to each other, quote, and this is so funny, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, just as an aside, you've got to see here that Christians were every bit as strange and out of place to people in the first century as they are today in the 21st century. If following Jesus makes you feel like a weirdo, just know that the Apostle Paul felt the same thing as you do. It's not like if you could just go back in history, ah, then it would just be normal to be a Christian. No, not then, not now. So these philosophers take Paul to the Aragopagus. It's also called Mars Hill. It's this high rocky outcropping where the city council would meet. And there Paul has this fascinating interaction with the top leaders and scholars of the city. And in that interaction, we see how to go about embracing both our place and our time, our city and our culture, when we have a missionary encounter. Now, the missionary encounter starts locally, 
And let's not take that part for granted. Let's not just skip over that, over that detail. This whole interaction is happening on Athenian turf in Athens, in center city. Paul's ministry is pursuing, not attractional. He did not go out to the county where the land's a little bit cheaper and invite the philosophers to come out there saying, look, we've got great music. We've got a great children's ministry. Come on out, listen to the sermon, and then we'll kind of talk about it afterwards. No, he didn't try to attract them. He went to them. And he picked a strategic location. This is a trend with Paul. In Acts chapter 17, he's in Athens, the intellectual center of the ancient world. In Acts 18, he's in Corinth, the commercial center. In Acts 19, he's in Ephesus, the religious center. And by the end of the book of Acts, he makes it to Rome, the political center. What you got to see is that the first and greatest missionary of the church did not travel the countryside hosting tent revivals. He went to urban centers and planted churches. Now, where does Paul go in Athens? He goes right to the urban heart, right to the marketplace, to center city. Now, why is this strategic? Well, it's strategic because as goes the city, so goes, so goes the culture. If you want to know what people in the suburbs of Richmond will be like in 20 years, go downtown and talk to people, right? Cities tend to spread culture from the inside out. Tim Keller writes, the early church was largely an urban movement that won the people of Roman cities to Christ, while most of the rural countryside remained pagan. I wonder, did you know that the root of our English word pagan means rural? Did you know that? Anyone who lives in the country would be deeply offended by that, right? (laughs) This is because the cities were the places of vibrant, growing churches, while the countryside resisted change, resisted the Christian faith. This is because people in cities are accustomed to encountering new ideas, lots of new ideas. And so usually if you're going to live in the city, you're going to have to have a kind of openness to listening to someone who is very different from you and who believes something very different from you. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes people who live in rural settings are much more set in their ways. Things tend to move slower in a rural context. Change is slower. And therefore there is generally a resistance, again, not always, but sometimes to new ideas. And in our time, we experience the inverse of this, don't we? We don't tend to think of cities as places where the church is vibrantly thriving. We tend to think of rural settings the flyover states, as the place where the church is stronger. And we tend to think of cities as the places where the church is weaker. But let's just think about that for a minute. In our time, rural settings tend to be more Christianized because that's what the United States used to be like. And now our cities tend to be more secularized because that's where our culture is moving. And cities tend to be out in front of whatever the trend is. Now, when Paul gets to Athens... He doesn't only start locally, and he doesn't, always start, he doesn't only start strategically. He also starts seeking to understand. He ministers, he has this missionary encounter in their language, making use of Athenian logic, Athenian felt needs. He references a statue to an unknown God. If you heard that while Lane was reading the text in Acts chapter 17, and you thought, I don't know what that is. Here's the backstory. This is the Athenian way of hedging your religious bets, okay? Better to have a statue to an unknown God just in case there's one out there that we haven't heard of yet. And Paul notices this and he says, quote, men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. That sentence 
doesn't, the humor of that sentence does not come through in English. It's funny in the original Greek because that word religious can either mean religious or superstitious. And even in the first century, there was some vagueness about which one you would mean when you say that. So is Paul complimenting them or is he making fun of them? It's hard to tell. And they might not have known either. So it's very interesting. In saying this, he is starting with their instincts, their curiosities, their questions. Just as a side note, if you've wondered, as we've talked about these seven practices of gospel formation for missional presence, and you've wondered why we've paired them with the seven fundamental questions that every human being is seeking to answer, this is why. Starting with questions, starting with curiosities, starting with felt needs. Paul's embrace of Athenian urban culture goes even further. He quotes to them this phrase as in in their interaction. He quotes to them, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably heard that phrase before. It's a phrase that Christians use very frequently. So here's kind of a bit of trivia. Do you know from which part of the Bible Paul is quoting? Is it Isaiah or Jeremiah? Is it Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is a pretty safe bet. Nobody knows what's in Deuteronomy, right? So if you say Deuteronomy, the person next to you is going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm sure you're right. It's not Deuteronomy. It sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? It sounds like something that David would write in one of the psalms. It's actually none of those. What Paul is doing is he's quoting from a poem written to Zeus in 600 BC. It's not a Bible verse. He's quoting from their own poet. Now, he keeps doing this. He actually does it a second time. He quotes to them, um, we are indeed his offspring. And this is actually a quote from a poem called Phenomena, which is written by a Stoic Greek poet. What is Paul doing? He is starting with their instincts, their curiosities, their question, even their literature. And you can tell that he is seeking to embrace the culture of the city because even when he is mocked, he is not offended and he's not deterred. And just out of curiosity, um, why did the Athenians mock Paul? I mean, up until this point, he's been a pretty persuasive kind of intellectual debater. And it seems like they're pretty engaged. They want to know what he has to say. They take him to Center City. They take him to like the most important place. They want to hear him out. But then as they hear him out, some of them begin making fun of him. Why? Well, it's because as he begins to explain the Christian faith to them, he probably starts with creation. He probably moves on to the fall into sin. He probably talks about Jesus. He talks about how Jesus comes to us. He talks about the life and death, but then he gets to the resurrection. And when he gets to the resurrection, the Athenians start laughing. And this, again, is nothing new. The resurrection is always the breaking point for people when it comes to like the plausibility of the Christian faith. It's, it's not really so different from our own age. Jesus, the teacher, love him. Jesus, the healer, awesome. Jesus, the lifter of the oppressed, I love it. Jesus died as a victim of state-sponsored violence. That will play, right? Jesus rose from the dead. No. You've jumped the shark. That's a bridge too far. The resurrection has always been the deal breaker. And there's fruit from this, even despite the mocking. Paul is unoffended. He's undeterred. And he bears fruit. Some of them believe. Not everyone. There's no big sweeping revival, but some of them believe. So what do we see in Paul's missionary encounter? 
We see that he's embracing the city's locale. He's embracing the strategic importance of center city, starting where people live. He's embracing the culture, starting with the questions and curiosities and even literature, like their background. Let's start with you. That's Paul's instinct in the missionary encounter. And even as we listen to that, we're going to have to do some looking in the mirror, some self-analysis here, because this kind of missionary encounter is where most people, whether you're a Christian or not, tend to break on the rocks and go in one of two different directions. These are the twin errors we tend to make. We either tend to demonize our context or we tend to idolize our context. We demonize our context or we idolize our context. Here's what it looks like to demonize your context. You say things like, look, cities are bad. They're dangerous. They're corrupt. Our young people move into cities. They get chewed up and they get spit out. The culture is bad. The culture is evil. It leads people away from God, away from goodness, away from virtue. It makes people self-centered and greedy, even violent. And you know, cities are simply places where there is a higher population density of humanity, right? Like if you want the most fundamental definition of a city, you would just say a place where there's a lot of people, population density, more humans per square mile. And this kind of instinct to demonize cities, it it recognizes, it gets something right. It rightly recognizes that all the problems of humanity are concentrated in cities. And You and I both know there is a lot of concentrated sin and corruption here in Richmond, isn't there? From Richmond's beginnings by oppressing native peoples to it being the second largest slave port in the nation, second only to New Orleans, to it being the capital of the Confederacy, to destroying historic black neighborhoods to make room for Interstate 95 and Interstate 64, to the challenges that that the city faces today, challenges of a struggling public school system, homelessness, segregated neighborhoods, political agendas that seem to serve those in power more than their constituents, right? We could just keep going. The Richmond human density has meant Richmond's sin density, right? Now, in response to this, there's kind of two subcategories where we tend to respond to the problems of cities in one of two ways. The first is a defensive response, a tendency to retreat and to pull back from cities and from culture. Circle the wagons, insulate the church from the city, insulate the church from the culture. You know, when we planted Redeemer six years ago, we had a 4 p.m. service here in the fan district on the corner of Park and Meadow. And I'll never forget that when we announced where and why this new parish would be gathering, we lost people. We lost people over the issue of where the church was going to meet. Why? People would say, come on, Dan, like parking is so difficult in the city. Besides, there's crime down there. Why can't we meet in the county where it's safer and cleaner and cleaner and just easier to get to? And we said, no, we are going to be in center city for all the same reasons that Paul went to Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and Rome. And when he was in Athens, he went to the Aragopagus. You go right to the heart. But we lost people over this. Now, there's a different kind of person that sees the problems and the issues of the city and responds not with retreat, but with an aggressive move forward, moving towards the city to dominate it, using language like, take back the city for God. In the same way, when we planted Redeemer those years ago, we had people who got fired up about being in the city, but they said things like, this is great. We're going to be brave. We're going to be tough. We're going to take Richmond for Jesus. It's kind of like a spiritual crusade. We're going to transform the city and make it a Christian city. Now, What's the problem with both of these postures? 
is that you tend to demonize the city because you're afraid of it. And the fear provokes either the fight or flight response. Either you run away from the city and the culture because you're afraid of it, or you go to war on the city and the culture because you're afraid of it. And so, listen, that's just one kind of person in the room, and I know that, because when we announced this sermon series and we said that sermon number five was gonna be on context, embracing our context in the city and in our cultural moment, there were some of you that thought, yes, that's already my favorite one because I love Richmond, right? So let's talk about the other side. Let's talk about our tendency to idolize the city. You also are the kind of person that recognizes that cities are simply concentrated humanity, high population density, but you see in that a different thing. You see the other side of the coin. You see the concentrated goodness. Look at all these people. Look how talented they are. Look how creative they are. I mean, cities, not always, but by and large, tend to draw out the best in people. The best doctors, the best lawyers, the best artists and chefs and teachers and nurses and bankers and managers and entrepreneurs tend to be, again, not always, but tend to be found in cities. And there's a lot to enjoy here in Richmond, isn't there? I mean, just think about our food scene. Not only do you have a lot of options, like Richmond is a great restaurant city, but some of the top chefs who are right on the cutting edge of the culinary arts are here. Like if you're a great chef and you live in like the central Virginia region, where are you? You are in Richmond. Think about music. It's so good to be able to catch a show at the National or Richmond City Music Hall. Think about art. We are right across the street from the VMFA. People drive from hours away in all directions just to spend a few hours there. And we get to be right across the street. Think about theater. Uh, about a year ago, I went to go see The Lion King at the Altria. And y'all, I'm not a theater guy, but I loved it, which is kind of embarrassing. But I did love it. Maybe I shouldn't be embarrassed. Theater's great. Uh, think about our universities. Think about U of R and VCU. There's so much to love about the city. And so the city draws you in and you begin to adopt eventually not only the urban style and the mannerisms and the rhythms of the city, but eventually the beliefs and the desires and the motives of the city as well. Now, I'm sure that Athens had a lot to enjoy, but is Paul only celebrating the city? Did Paul demonize the city? Did he celebrate the city? Well, not fully one or the other. Look what the Apostle Paul did. He took the idols of Athens and he used them to show, to reveal what was already inside every Athenian heart. He showed them that even though they were in every way very religious, very spiritual, he showed them what their spiritual hunger meant. He pointed them to the source of their spiritual hunger. This is what good missionaries always do. Now, the irony is that when we send, when the church sends missionaries to other countries, those missionaries usually spend months, if not years, training, studying the culture, studying the city, studying the place, getting to know the context in which they are going to minister. Is that our posture? Do we have a missionary, a missional posture towards our own city? Herein lies one of the worst disconnects in the church in our present time, is that we tend to see a divide between followers of Jesus who serve as missionaries who go somewhere else, and then normal Christians who live stateside. And we tend to think of those who get sent 
as needing to have that kind of hyper-intentionality to getting to know the context of their place so they can have that missionary encounter where they are bringing the gospel and being a missional presence. But we tend to think that as a specialty thing. Like the Navy SEAL equivalent of Christian are the people who do that sort of thing. Not me. I'm just a normal person. I live here. But what would it mean if we did the same thing? What would it look like? How could we begin to do that? To answer that question, we have to ask, well, how does Jesus come to us? How does Jesus have a missionary encounter with us? When Jesus encounters us in all of our concentrated wickedness and sin, and in all of our concentrated goodness, because we're all made in the image of God, what does Jesus do when he encounters us? Does he demonize us? Does he defend himself from us or aggressively attack us, go to war on us? No. Does he idolize us and just affirm and affirm and affirm? No. Jesus does not defend from us. He doesn't attack us aggressively and he doesn't idolize us or just try to assimilate with us. No. Jesus comes to, and you already know the answer, he comes to love us. But what does it mean to truly love somebody or something? It means not defending, not attacking, and not assimilating, but rather from a place of differentiation, seeking the good for the other, even at great cost to the self. This is the meaning of the incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity, God in flesh, who is Jesus. And this is why we read from John chapter 1, verse 14 this morning, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Eugene Peterson now deceased uh, theologian, has written a really wonderful translation of that verse into more kind of contemporary English where he writes, and God put on skin and moved into the neighborhood. That is the meaning of the incarnation. And Jesus in the incarnation fully inhabits our place and fully inhabits our time. And so Jesus becomes not only our model for what it means to have a missionary encounter, He's also the means by which we have a missionary encounter. Here's what I mean. Jesus is more present than we are. Jesus is already more present in the city of Richmond than you and I are present in the city of Richmond. Jesus already more fully inhabits our cultural moment than you and I inhabit our cultural moment. Some of you, and not everybody's read this, but some of you may have read this wonderful little novella by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And in it, you don't have to know the whole story, but in it, um, there are these characters who are already citizens of heaven. And they are, their substance is solid and dense and real. And then there are citizens of the city of the world. And they're kind of ethereal ghosts. They kind of don't have much substance to them. And when they encounter the reality of the place or the reality of these heavenly creatures, their substance is less than the substance of the heavenly place or the heavenly people. And what C.S. Lewis is doing in this wonderful little metaphor is showing us how Jesus and the people of Jesus become more present, more real to their place and to their time. Jesus is more here than we are. So if you really want to be here, to be present in the city of Richmond, to be attentive to your neighbors and to our cultural time, you must not only do so like Jesus, you must do so through Jesus, beginning to see through his eyes, listen through his ears, love through his heart, speak through his mouth. St. Augustine wrote, 
what has become one of the most important and influential books in all of Western civilization is a book called The City of God. And in it, he writes this. It's a couple sentences, but listen if you can. He writes, The earthly city has made for herself, according to her heart's desire, false gods out of any sources at all, even out of human beings, that she might adore them with sacrifices. The heavenly city, on the other hand, living like a wayfarer in this world. Remember we talked earlier about how the church is strangers and sojourners and pilgrims in this world? Augustine is naming that. He's using the word wayfarer. The heavenly one, heavenly city, on the other hand, living like a wayfarer in this world, makes no false gods for herself. On the contrary, she herself, the church, is made by the true God that she may be herself a true sacrifice. The church is the foretaste of this heavenly city, the city of God, not separating from the city of man, defending against the city of man, or going to war against the city of man, but, or being assimilated into the city of man, but giving herself sacrificially for the good of the city of man. The city of God, the church, is to love the city of man. Not love as in affirm and approve, but love as to, from a place of differentiation, seek the good of the other, even at great cost to the self. The city of God is the salt sprinkled throughout the city of man. The city of God is a beacon on a hill, a light that offers hope to the city of man. The city of God offers herself in sacrificial love for the redemption of the city of man. And so we, Redeemer, our little parish, are to live as the incarnational presence of Jesus to the city of Richmond and to our age, our secular age and our time. Now, as we conclude and we think about what it means to practice this context, we've talked about embracing the context and looking at the ministry and the missionary encounter of the Apostle Paul in Athens. We've talked about the tendency to either demonize your context or idolize your context. And then we're talking about the third way of Jesus, which is to actually love your context from a place of differentiation to seek the good of the other, even at great cost to the self. That's what it means for the church to love her context, our city and our cultural moment. If that's who we are, and if we are sent as missionaries to Richmond, how would we go about approaching our city and our culture? What kind of practices would we need to take up? Well, we would certainly practice being local, right? Be here. Don't be somewhere else. Be here. We would move towards the center, practicing strategy. We would listen. We would be curious. We would ask questions, seeking to understand the motives that are on our neighbor's hearts. We would become experts in the city of Richmond, just as if you would become an expert of a place if you were sent as a missionary there. We would become experts in late modernity in Western civilization, right? Which sounds all academically. It's just a way, a fancy way of saying, what is this age that we are living in? What are the values and motives and goods of this age? And how might we better understand them? We have said that we are a church that exists to practice gospel formation for missional presence. The question before us this morning is, will we be missionally present here in Richmond and here in our time? And will we do so embodying the love of Jesus who is already here and already in our time? And will we embody the love of Jesus in this place and in our age? Y'all, saints tend to be named after their context. St. Teresa of Avila, St. Francis of Assisi, Martin Luther of the Reformation. Might we be people who so deeply love and are embedded in our context 
that people might be tempted to name us after this place. St. Louis of Midlothian, St. Lane of the Museum District, St. Will of Carytown. May it be so of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have come to us, Lord Jesus, in your incarnation to be present to us in our place and in our time. Would you help us to so believe and receive and inhabit and embody your gospel that you would make us to be a church, to be missionally present here in the city of Richmond, here in our time. Help us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.